Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Um, We literally have, you guys are going to get excited about this, two weeks left in the book of Acts, and we're actually done with the book. Like, okay, just just to give you a little bit of a perspective on this, I think this message, if if my counting is accurate, this is message number, are you ready for this? Anyone, anybody want to take a random guess how many messages were into this? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers who would love to get by. 60? Close. What? 66? 666? No, that's not good. We don't want six. Anyways, just kidding. 66, 60, 71? Who said 71? Oh, you need a Bible. Okay. And what, what else? Numbers? We can keep going forever. Anyways, here's the deal. Are you ready? 72, 72, like that's, I don't, I don't know if I've ever taught a longer sermon series than this, it's crazy, 72 messages that we have, uh, and we still got two more left to go, you're welcome. So we, we have been in this series literally verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Acts, it's a really, really long book, and that's one of the reasons why it's taken so long. Um, so what we want to do today is we have been looking at sort of the final movements in the book of Acts. Um, the, the main character in the book of Acts is this guy by the name of Paul the Apostle. So we titled the series The Acts of the Holy Spirit. We did that purposefully because uh, underlying, underneath the, the whole movement of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. Um, God's breath, God's life-giving breath, breathing life into people who are infused with God's life, the gospel. They leave Jerusalem, which is sort of the center, most part of the early church, and they go on to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts starts in the city of Jerusalem. It ends in the city of Rome, which gives you a very quick indication as to what the main idea with this book is all about, is that God is going public, that God is going beyond simply the borders of Jewish people into all the world. Um, a couple ways in which you can think about that is uh, the Gentiles. Another word for that is the nations. That God is literally bringing his life-saving message to all the world, not just a select uh, group of Jewish people in a small part of the world. That It's gone public. So that's the way that we can think about this. <clears throat> so what we've been looking at in particular is the life of this guy, Paul the Apostle. Um, Paul's life is really uh, surprisingly amazing because on the one hand, Paul starts out in character as being a persecutor of the church, meaning his main objective is to stop this perceived threat called Christianity, and his main objective is to try to literally throw people into prison or to kill them or to do whatever possible means is necessary to stop this movement that's associated with Jesus. Now, obviously, within the meantime, Paul meets Jesus himself. Paul gets radically, what we'd say, saved or converted or transformed. And that Paul's life takes on this radically different direction from rather than being a persecutor, trying to snuff out or destroy Christianity, Paul literally becomes a number one proponent of Christianity, whereby Paul is now going around uh, planting churches. And that's what he does for the most of the book. Paul ends up getting arrested. Paul gets in trouble. And over the last few chapters, we've been basically watching Um, Luke, who's the writer of the story, narrating for us uh, at least five different occasions in which Paul gives these public defenses. Um, The Greek word is apologia. It's the idea of giving his defense before those to whom he is accountable to, at least on an earthly level. And so in Acts chapter 26, uh, we see Paul standing before these radical powers that be. Um, there's going to be some characters that are going to be named, which we'll unpack in just a moment. We'll try to talk a little bit about this. But what I want to do this morning, the, the title of today is uh, just simply entitled Speaking Truth to Power, because that's exactly what happens. Paul is put into the position before these powerful leaders, um, and then we'll, we'll actually come back to these slides in a second so you guys can take a look at these, and I'll, I'll explain them in just a moment here. Um, but hopefully this, this message, and or more particularly the storyline, is intriguing to you. We're going to read through the entire chapter, every verse. I'll make some comments on a few of them. And then we'll wrap it up with just basically looking at a few takeaways or things to think about in terms of summary to, to, to consider, to ponder, to meditate upon um, that I think have to do with the overall text. So with that, what I want to do is I want to break the overall chapter down into four main 
movements, or if you want to think of it like chapter titles or titles over certain sections. So the first movement we'll take a look at is Paul's status as a religious elite. He's going to uh, begin to address, again, by way of his defense, who he is and what he was. So we're going to see Paul's status as a religious elite. Second, we'll take a look at Paul's rage against all things Jesus, as he describes that. Thirdly, we'll take a look at Paul's destruction, uh, deconstruction, rebirth, and then ultimately his commission into what God has called him. And then finally, we'll take a look at this uh, movement that has to do with Paul's truth-telling to the power. So Paul standing before these uh, really powerful people um, and yet speaking truth to them. So with that, we'll jump right into the passage. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. And then uh, we'll begin to look at the story itself. And uh, as we've been kind of making the, uh, the, the, the idea known over the past few weeks is because this is a large narrative, we could break it down in just small little bite-sized pieces. Um, but I think we would be losing elements of the story. So it's one of the reasons why we are looking at larger passages of Scripture, reading through them, taking the time to make our way through them. That may be a little bit cumbersome for some of you that are not used to reading large passages of Scripture. But my hope would be that you would at least... Um, um, expand maybe your, your horizons, your appreciation, if, if, if anything, your appreciation of Scripture and just the narrative, just the story. That's why we've been kind of jokingly saying what we've been trying to think about this as is, is story time with Pastor B. So that's it, story time with Pastor B. So let me pray. We'll then jump into story time with Pastor B. So God, thank you for your love. Thank you, God, that you're here. Right now, Lord, we just uh, recognize your presence, we welcome you as our King, as our Lord. Jesus, you have opened our eyes, our hearts. We've seen beauty. We've been compelled by your love. i got to pray that if there are any here even right now that um, the subject of Jesus is just a foreign persona, that really has no compelling nature. God, I pray for anybody here right now that would describe Jesus as just an interesting figure, but not as Lord. I pray that you'd open their hearts, open their eyes to the beauty, the love of God that's been revealed through Christ. So God, we commit this morning in your hand, commit this time in your care, and pray that God, you would help me to be able to speak forth the things that are on your heart and anything that's not on your heart that just gets spoken. God, I pray that it would just simply fall by the wayside and be forgotten. So we commit this morning in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Well said. Amen. So I want to jump in, and before we actually jump into chapter 26, I want to take a look at uh, just a little bit of a backstory. So to do that, I want to dip in a little bit into chapter 25. So if you guys were here last week, Pastor James had taught this, and uh, so you guys would have already got this. But So if you weren't here last week, then uh, some of this is... Uh, just re-entry into the story. If you were here, it's review. So with that, I'm going to jump in. We'll take a look at verse 13 and just kind of read a few select verses of chapter 25. I have it up on the screen. You can just follow along. It says this. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So we'll come back to who these characters are in just a moment because they're all really significant and important. Uh, 14, it says, and as they stayed there many days, Festus uh, laid Paul's case before the king. Verse 16, Festus then said, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused and the accusers faced, uh, were face to face, had opportunity to make their defense concerning the charge laid against him. So in other words, he's basically telling uh, King Agrippa, he's like, look, uh, I told the accusers that we, we can't really do anything against Paul. Um, unless we actually have a fair trial. So there is some level of justice going on here, and he's saying that justice has not been fully uh, enacted or whatever, so he's describing this to this guy, King Agrippa. Like I said, we'll come back to who he is in just a moment. Verse 18 says, When the accusers, they stood up, they brought no charge of such evils as I had supposed. Verse 19 he said, But rather, uh, they had certain points of dispute with Paul uh, their, uh, about their own religion and about a certain man named Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul had asserted to be alive. Amen? Isn't that amazing? Like, I love this. Like, this is, this is like a historical account. So Festus, uh, this, this uh, dignitary, is basically like, here's, here's what we hear. Paul's basically saying that this is Jesus, who everyone else is saying is dead. Paul is believing he's alive. 
And ultimately, just like, this is just a religious issue. This is not an issue of, like, public matter. I mean, it'd be like standing before the Supreme Court and uh, Supreme Justice being like, look, I don't really care what you think about speaking in tongues or whether or not you are a Calvinist or an Arminian. It makes no difference. We just want to make sure you pay your taxes. You don't murder people. Like, if, as long as you're doing that, as long as you are a good citizen in America, it's, it's good. We don't really care about your religious disputes. And that's kind of what's going on here. In verse 20, he says, being at a loss on how to investigate those questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But then Paul, uh, appealed, to, uh, Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, Caesar. I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Verse 22 says, then Agrippa then said to Festus, I would like to hear the man for myself tomorrow and then Festus says, and you will hear from him. So let's take a look at a little bit of the context. What in the world is going on? And who are these characters? Because again, any good movie, or if you've ever read any good book, and you don't really know who the characters are, you know how kind of frustrating it is? Like, have you ever read a good book or watched a movie or something like that? And you're like, now who are these characters? And where do they fit in the storyline? You feel a little bit lost. That's, that's maybe how you feel right now. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So first of all, who is Agrippa? Who's Agrippa, and who's this other gal that's mentioned by the name of Bernice, and then who's this other guy named Festus? So first of all, this guy Festus, he, Paul, he, Festus would have been like a governor. He would have been a guy that had a, a pretty high-level uh, connectedness to Rome. He would have been the representative of Rome in this region of Caesarea, or, which is kind of on the coast of, uh, of modern-day Israel. So he had a really high, dignifying role to play within this. So he was purely secular. Not religious at all, didn't really care about religion, didn't care about Judaism, didn't care about Jesus, didn't really care about Paul other than the fact that Paul was his responsibility because Paul was a citizen. So that's, first of all, who Festus is. Festus took the job of this other guy by the name of Felix. So if you guys were here a couple weeks ago, there's a guy by the name of Felix. I know all these F, like names that begin with F, I'm not going to say F words, F names, words that uh, could be a little bit confusing, but there's Felix and then there's Festus. We're looking at Festus right now. So both of them kind of had the same role. Uh, the next guy that we'll take a look at is this guy by the name of uh, Agrippa. Right, I want to show you a slide, kind of the family tree of Agrippa. Um, in fact, his family plays a very significant role throughout the entirety of the New Testament. You ready? It's kind of fascinating. Um, and again, he's a total historical figure. Pick up any history book, this guy actually happened. In fact, I would even say this is one of the reasons why we can identify the fact that Scripture can be trusted. It's, it's rooted in history. Are you ready? You guys are already laughing at my little emoji. Come on. <laughs> wait till I get there. All right, here we go. So Herod the Great, he's the first guy. He's kind of like the patriarch of his entire family. Uh, we know, and according to Matthew chapter 2, he actually tried to kill uh, baby Jesus, right, infant Jesus. Uh, he is uh, an egomaniac. This guy was, was actually a pretty phenomenal character. Uh, he was totally full of himself. And part of that, he, he built massive um, uh, buildings and temples this guy was a really, really well-known guy in the first century. Uh, I've heard of the ancient city of Masada. That's basically nothing more than ruins today. He built that. This guy is known for basically building a lot of major structures all throughout the region of Israel. And uh, he was constantly afraid or fearful of losing his role. He oftentimes were, was guilty of killing his spouses and anybody that was related to him. So think uh, North Korean uh, dictator. That's kind of like who Herod the Great is. All right, Herod the Great had a son. His son was named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the guy, and according to Matthew chapter 14, who actually killed John the Baptist. Move forward, Herod Antipas had a son. His son's name was Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was the guy in Acts 12 that was responsible for killing James, the brother of John. Um, remember, James, the son of Zebedee, so he was an important figure in the early church. Uh, Herod Agrippa was the guy that was responsible for that. Herod Agrippa had three, at least three children, maybe had a, a, a lot more children, right? These guys are pretty prolific and had all sorts of mistresses. Herod Agrippa had at least three children that we know for sure. One was Drusilla. We saw her appear in the story two weeks ago. She was actually the wife of uh, Felix, all right? So this, this whole political story is so crazily interwoven. It's like literally the epitome of dysfunctionality. Um, but this is, or in like soap opera, like this was it. So Drusilla was the sister of Herod Agrippa II. That's who we're looking at right now. That's who's in the story. 
and then this gal by the name of Bernice. So Herod Agrippa is the guy before Paul is standing in front of in Acts chapter 26, which we'll look at. And then Bernice is also said to be by the side of, of Herod Agrippa. So who's Bernice? This is where the story gets really complex and weird and creepy. So Bernice has this long history as well. Both Bernice and Drusilla were said by Josephus and other New Testament uh, or uh, extra biblical writers. They were beautiful, beautiful beyond description. Um, so you imagine they had a lot of uh, relationships. They were married to several different men. But in this case, Bernice had been married at least one other time, maybe a couple other times. And then she had moved back into the, uh, into the castle, if you would, of this guy by the name of Herod Agrippa. And all sorts of rumors were flying around. Like they're having an affair, like creepy affair, incestuous affair. All the rumors are going around. She ends up getting married to some other guy. Just basically, a lot of people believe it was more of a political move to basically dispel any myths of impropriety. But nonetheless, obviously, rumors are pretty powerful. So... Now we see sort of the story. This is the guy before Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, Paul the Apostle, is standing right in front of them. So where is he standing? Uh, glad you asked because uh, we actually know exactly where this is. So next slide. Um, I'll show you a couple slides of just uh, maps. Okay, here we go. So this is, a, in fact, can we go to the other one, the overview one first? All right, so this overview one. Uh, I showed this to you guys a couple weeks ago. So that big theater right there is obviously overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. This whole entire area is called Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the, by the sea. And uh, this theater actually still exists to this day. So if you went there, like right now, you can go watch concerts. And it's really, really fantastic. And they've redone it. It's beautiful. So next slide, we'll show you kind of more of an a opposite end. So if you, from this angle, you can just see it's massive. It's really big. I have no idea how many people it seats, several thousand at least. So this particular region right here, right in the very center of that stage, uh, that would have been probably where uh, Herod Agrippa II, along with this guy Festus, along with uh, this lady Bernice, his sister slash mistress, whatever, would have been standing. And then right somewhere on this pavement, pro probably where the stairs are at or uh, just above that, would have been Paul the Apostle standing. So can you show the slide of the uh, shackles? So what's interesting about Israel is that there's all sorts of excavation, archaeological digs going on constantly, like right now, all over the place. And they've, they've found like all sorts of archaeological uh, artifacts. Like this is one of them. This would have been very similar to the type of uh, hand shackles that Paul the Apostle would have had. So why don't you go back to the stage again, that overview of, uh, I'm sorry, the other one. There you go. Uh, so imagine Paul the Apostle standing in front of this massive, uh, I don't know, like depiction of power, hands shackled, totally bold, totally on fire for Jesus. Like, this is what I want you to get in your mind, this picture of this. All right, are there any other slides or pictures that I have? No? Is that it? Okay. All right, so I want you to, oh, let's go back to that tapestry. Uh, let me show you this one. So this is just a famous tapestry, probably around the 1500s. Um, yeah, it's a tapestry. So, so this is a picture, Paul. Standing before, it's kind of hard to see, but, you know, it's tapestry. Some people are into those. So here's a famous portrait, a tapestry of Paul standing before uh, Herod, Antip uh, Herod Agrippa II, Bernice, and this guy, Festus. So with that, let's jump into the story. Let's begin to read a little bit about what's happening here, what's taking place. So I'm going to read through this. I'll make some comments, and we'll wrap this up. So let's jump in and take a look at the very first movement I want for us to think about. With all this backstory in your mind, with Paul standing in front of these dignitaries, these powers that be, uh, 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 religious powers, uh, uh, super uh, powers of the state, Paul standing in front of these people. They have literally the sword. They have the power if they wanted to, to to put Paul to death. Right? Treachery is always on the move in these types of scenarios, and and yet here's Paul boldly standing in front of them. Bearing testimony of what God has done in his life. So let's begin to read. We'll take a look at verse 1, chapter 26. We'll enter into the story. It starts like this. It's Paul's status as a religious elite as he goes back and recounts who he was in his former life. It says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, and made his defense. Imagine Paul stretching out his hand. Not very far though. He's got shackles on. He says, I consider myself fortunate 
that is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Herod Agrippa, um, along with his long lineage of family, um, th this guy had a, had a really unique role in the placement of, of Rome. So even though he was recognized as a king, it was more of like a, like a puppet king. He didn't have like supreme authority over the land. He was basically, think of like, um, I don't know, the Queen of England. She's not the final decision maker in the, in the nation, but she's more of a, of a token power, of, of, a, of a distant past. And that's kind of who Herod Agrippa is. He doesn't necessarily have supreme power, but he does represent some level of power throughout the land. Uh, and he is, you know, I, I want to say respected. He's kind of more notorious. Like uh, the Jews really don't like him. And so here's Paul. He's familiar with his background. He knows that this guy would have been very familiar with, because um, his great-great-grandfather, Herod the Great, actually was the one that built the temple. So the temple that Jesus is literally walking around, that would have been built by Herod the Great. So he has some sort of familiarity with the customs of Judaism. And Paul makes his appeal to him. He's like, I'm so glad I'm having this opportunity to stand before you, Herod, because you get it. You understand the disputes and the religious ideology in which I represent, so I'm glad I get to uh, present my case before you. Then he goes on in verse 4. He says, the, My manner of life from my youth was spent from the beginning among you in my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known to all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So this Paul is basically identifying identifying Mark saying that I, I was a part of the elite sect of Judaism. Um, I, I'm not even really sure how to liken this to, but like, for example, if you were to describe it as like a Catholic, from a Catholic perspective, this would be like saying I was a cardinal, or I was someone that was very, very high up, or someone that was like uh, highly respected within the you know, halls of, of religion. And Paul's saying this is who I was. Everybody knew who I was. I had this very high-level, high-elite status within Judaism, and everybody knew this. And if they showed up, then they would be able to testify that to you. But Paul's like, hint, hint, nobody's here. Nobody's here testifying against me. He's like, isn't that odd? You know, you can kind of read between the lines. He didn't really say that, but you get the idea. Verse 6, he says, Now I stand here on trial because of the hope of the promise that was made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I'm accused by the Jews. O king, why is, it a thought, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the debt? So Paul makes his direct appeal to King Agrippa. He's like, look, I know that you know the scriptures. It shouldn't be shocking to you. We have this big, powerful God, right, king? He can raise people from the dead. And Paul's like, that's why I'm busted. Like, if you want to reduce it down, I'm here because I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that God is up to doing something brand new in this world. We'll unpack more of that in just a moment. Let's move on to the very next movement in which we see Paul's uh, rage against all things related to Jesus. Paul goes on to say, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That phrase right there blows my mind, and here, here's why. Paul himself says, I was convinced I was doing the right things. So let me ask you, are good intentions enough to be right with God? Huh? Is it enough to actually have a good intention before God and God to just simply accept our good intentions? Apparently not. Because Paul's basically sitting here saying, look, I was convinced. I totally believed what I was doing was the right path. Paul's going to basically hit the punchline and be like, it wasn't the right path. So in our culture today, we have this thing which we oftentimes say, let's trust your conscience. What do you feel? What feels right to you? Go ahead and do that. So we have all these different ways in which we describe it or identify it or say it. But what I want to suggest to you is really what you should do is doubt your conscience. Question your conscience. Don't trust your conscience because it's possible that your conscience is out of alignment. It's possible that your desires are wayward. It's possible that your hopes, your anticipations, your good intentions 
are out of alignment. And to follow those things will lead you to a path of destruction, just like what Paul is saying. Again, listen to it again. He says, I myself, I was convinced. What are you convinced of right now in your life? What are you convinced of? I, I, I watched this movie yesterday, and there was this line that I just, I'm still chewing on it. And this guy basically says, uh, the difference between Satan, uh, he was describing this gal that had written a letter to him, and she said something in the fact, she says, um, the difference to me between Satan and God is, she says, I knew where I stood with Satan. I knew that Satan had it out to destroy me. But she says, with God, I wasn't really so certain where I stood. And the guy makes this point. He says, it's shocking that we can actually be in a context of having so much confidence in something other than God and really the confidence that we place in other things. The point is, is that we should have this high level of confidence that actually God is for us. God cares for us. God loves us. Instead, what we do, we place a high level of confidence in my desires, what's in my heart, my passions, my feelings, my emotions, and a variety of other things. And Paul says, as he hits the punchline, what I placed my confidence in was totally false and wrong. As he goes on in verse uh, 10, he says, and I did this in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme and in the raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is Paul's admission. He was a terrorizer. His aim was to completely destroy anything Jesus-related. Anything that smelled, looked, tasted, felt of Jesus. Paul is determined. And he actually felt totally justified. He felt that this was the right thing. I mean, talk about right or wrong, good or evil. Paul would say, I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing good. I'm eliminating evil. But Paul has this radical moment of awakening where God literally destroys or deconstructs his life. And that kind of moves on in the very next movement as we keep making our way through this. In verse uh, 12, he says this. In the connection, or in, in this connection, uh, I journeyed to Damascus, this way, this path. He says, with the authority and the commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way light from heaven, brighter than the sun, and shone round about me and those who journeyed with me. And when they all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's just, the, the image here is uh, uh, like a horse um, with a rider on his back, and the goads would be like, any cowboys here? Anybody's a cowboy? Spurs? All right, one cowboy. Come on, there's got to be more. You're just not wanting to admit it, but that's cool. We still love you. The, the, think of it like a spur. Um, what Paul, what, what he's being described here is like, he's like, you, you're kicking against the spurs. The spurs are going into your side, but you keep resisting. You keep fighting. You know something's not right, but you keep resisting. Let me just say this to you. If you are in this place in your life, does this apply to you? Are there any of you right now, in your conscience, you know that there's a path or a direction that you're going down in life, choices you're making, decisions you're following, uh, desires you're pursuing, and in the back of your heart, you're like, I don't think this is right. But you keep trying to convince yourself it is. That, by definition, is kicking against the goads. Another word for it is stubbornness. There is a spiritual stubbornness that oftentimes can define us where we are resisting, we're fighting, we're trying to hold on to something. And God is saying, don't let your heart go that route because it will bring about ruin and destruction and emptiness and brokenness. Let go of it. Pursue me. And that's what Paul's saying is that he was kicking against these goats. In verse 15, he says, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's kind of an interesting thing because... Paul was persecuting Christians. Catch that? So what did Jesus say? Paul, you're persecuting me. So which is it? Persecuting Christians, persecuting Jesus. This is shocking. You ready for this? 
all scholars, all people that have read this, I think even Paul the Apostle, from this idea, develops this concept in the New Testament. It's beautiful. That Jesus so associates himself with his people that to persecute his people is to persecute Jesus. Jesus so relates. So let me give you an example. I've been married 27 years. Is that right, honey? 27? (laughs) Sorry, somewhere around there. High number, 27. Been great years. All right, there we go. I got to redeem myself there. Um, And and if if somebody said something negative about my wife, that's a slam against me. You, You guys follow? Or if you got kids, or someone that you are deeply connected to on a relational, even blood, blood level, there is this deep relationship that you have invested yourself entirely into their life that to attack them or to defame them or to uh, disrespect them is to actually, you are so vested in that, is you bear that same emotional pain. That's what Jesus is saying to Paul is that you're persecuting me even though you're persecuting people, because there's a deep connection between Jesus and his people. And then he goes on to say in verse uh, 16, uh, but then he says, rise, stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for the purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things of which you have seen me. Uh, And then he says, and to those of which I will appear to you. Verse 17, delivering uh, you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. I open their eyes and so that uh, may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and to a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Now that's a mouthful because I want to unpack it real quickly. So this is what's typically known as Paul's commission. So Paul here, as he's kind of giving his backstory to this, these, these powers that be, Paul's like, look, God, God radically disrupted my life. Um, and let me, let me just say this. If, if your life has hit a brick wall and there is that sense of disruption, deconstruction, that doesn't mean that's the end of you. It could actually mean it's the beginning of you. So hear me out. For some of you, your, your life has hit a wall of coming undone. You're fraying. You're falling apart. Your life has literally hit a wall, and it's, it feels disruptive. It feels like it's coming apart. Do you realize that that is, we, we tend to look at that and be like, it's, my life's over. It's the end of me. Actually, it's very possible that may be the beginning. That's what was happening with Paul, that God was actually bringing Paul to a place where his life was coming undone. God was literally deconstructing Paul the apostle, or Saul of Tarsus, if you would, and reconstructing something new, rebirthing someone new. And this is what we see that Paul is describing. But not just simply saving him from hell or from destruction, but saving him for something. God's aim for our lives is not just to somehow give us a get-out-of-hell-free ticket someday when we die way off in the future. God's aim is far bigger, far vaster, far greater than that, that it begins right now, that if God has rescued you, it's not just saving you from hell at some point in the future, but saving you for God's purposes here now. A question for you to wrestle with and think about, and you might, you know, you're not going to get answers to this right away. Some of you might by way of revelation, and those moments can happen, but for the most part, most of us, we wrestle through this through life. The question is, God, what is your purpose for me, how do you want to use me? How do you want to use my gifts, my story, my background, my life, my testimony of how you saved me for your purposes? And that's what we see Paul basically describing here. And the way he does this is he describes his call in the way of three verbs. So take a look at this next slide. I'll kind of give you a little bit of a breakdown as to, I think I, think I have this written down. Maybe I don't. So he does it this way. Number one, he says that I have appeared to you. Jesus Jesus speaking, I, I had appeared to you. Secondly, he says that I will deliver you out of the hands of the Jews and out of the Gentiles, meaning they, I won't let them kill you. You will survive this. And surprisingly, everywhere Paul went, went, for the most part, he creates this chaos and people want to kill Paul. Right? He's the most loved guy to be hated, right? So everywhere Paul is going, people want to kill him. And Jesus says, I'm going to save you from all of these attempted murder plots and so on and so forth. And then he says, I am sending you to the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying is that his commission, his mission from God is not to just simply, you know, start a church in the middle of Jerusalem where it's all Gentiles. 
that God's call on Paul's life was to go to the farthest places of the earth that has nothing to do with God whatsoever, the darkest places, if you would, the, the most remedial when it comes to understanding who God is, that's where God is sending Paul. So Paul is basically making his argument saying, that's why my counterpart, the Jews, are so angry with me. It's because I'm basically going around announcing this message that God's favor, God's love, God's salvation is being announced not just to good, Bible-believing, fundamentalist Jewish people, but to those that have no connection whatsoever with God at all, but are so far, so remote, so removed from God that they're, they're not even thinking about God ever in their heart, that God's announcement of forgiveness is being given to them as well. That, in other words, to put it in their context, that God is welcoming everybody to the table, no matter who they are, whether they're religious or irreligious, whether they were a committed Jew or whether they were a committed atheist. God's invitation is to come to the table to receive grace, to receive forgiveness. That's a free gift from God. Amen. That's the point that he's making. It's good news. So what I want to do is I'm going to wrap it up with this thing where Paul basically speaks truth to the powers that be and we'll finish. Uh, let's take a look at about verse 19. We'll jump in. He says this. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those that are in Damascus, that's where Paul first met Jesus and got kind of reoriented. He says, then to Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, then also to the Gentiles. So if you remember back in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, where Jesus actually says to his disciples, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my disciples, my witnesses, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the world. Paul basically reiterates exactly that. Paul's like, look, Damascus was my, my Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was sort of my Judea. And then Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Paul's saying, this is what God called me to do. In other words, uh, as he's speaking to Agrippa, he's like, look, I, I was just simply faithful to do what God had called me to do. Preaching the gospel, making his great name known. And then he goes on to say, uh, around verse, uh, let's see, verse 20, he says, But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So they, again, the message of repentance, which just simply means to turn, it's, it's, a, it's an invitation. It's an invitational word to say, turn away from false narratives, turn away from a lifestyle that's in opposition to God, turn away from any forms of life that stand opposed to God, stand against God, and it's an invitation to come join the work that God is doing right now. The, the same message is always, always made available to you and I, even right now, so no matter what type of life you're living or lifestyle you're adopting or whatever types of uh, desires you're wrestling with that are over-desires that are taking you away from the center of God's heart, the invitation is the same thing to you, to turn from those false narratives and the false promises that they give. Because every narrative that we typically want to uh, associate with, typically at the heart of it, there is a promise. You understand that? Every desire that you and I have that we go following, we wander off the path to follow. At the center of every, quote-unquote, good thing that our hearts are being given to is a promise. And the promise goes something like this. Imbibe me, trust me, shoot me up, have sex with me, be in relationship with me, indulge in me, and you will be happy. You will be accepted. You will be welcomed. You will have life. And yet, they're always false. Because if they do offer any bit of life or help or appeasement or numbing, it's only temporary. Because the pain, the loss, the hurt, is always there. Not only that, it gets complicated. You wonder how it gets complicated? Because after the one night stand that promised, it, promised everything comes in the morning, shame. And Satan has not, just now created a feedback loop for you. You're stuck. Go back to the sexual encounter, re-engage shame. Sexual encounter, shame. It's just a cycle over and over and over again. It's, by definition, enslavement. The very thing Jesus says, I've come to free you from. How? 
Do we get out of that cycle? Jesus would say, repent, turn, break the cycle. Trust me. I'll give you a new life. This is what God does. This is what Paul went around to announce. Verse 21, he says, for this reason the Jews, they seized me in the temple. For this reason the, uh, the Jews seized me in verse 22. He says, to this day I have had to help the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, meaning people of no status and people of high status. Again, he's standing for a king. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. This is sort of the summary of all this. And it says in verse 23, that the Christ must suffer. That by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. But Paul is basically saying that, look, Agrippa, the whole reason why I'm standing for you right now in chains is because I have this hope that there's another king. That's what the word Christ, by the way, means. So I want you to get this picture in your mind. Here's Paul. This is, you know, short in stature. This story tells us Jew in shackles standing in front of King Herod. Now, which, one of the passages, I can't remember which one, it says that Herod and Bernice come out in pomp. You know the word pomp that's actually used there? I'm not sure what uh, translation that's in or what verse that's in. But the actual Greek word, I looked it up, and it's the word fantasy. So these guys are literally standing in front of Paul dressed like a fantasy. I don't even know what that means. I just imagine a lot of bling. All right, here they are standing in front of Paul, sitting in front of Paul with their scepter and gold-threaded robes. I don't know what it is. And, and Paul's standing there in chains. They're the ones that look like they're free and have it all together. And Paul looks like he's the one that is enslaved. But really what Paul's saying is that, look, you guys, you are the ones that are enslaved. I'm free. Because my conscience is clear. And I represent the king that the prophets long ago foretold would come into this world, he would suffer and die and rise again from the dead and that his name would be proclaimed to all the nations. What Paul is doing right there is something fantastic. He's literally, in some ways, uh, uh, recapsulating the entire book of Isaiah, if you would, or at least some of the main highlights of the book of Isaiah. So next slide, I want to show you this real quick and we'll wrap this up. Paul basically breaks it down like this. So there's three things that Paul identifies. Number one, that this king, not, not King Agrippa, not King Caesar, but the king of all kings. The, the, your boss, in other words, Agrippa. Agrippa, you didn't know this. He had a boss. And he's like, yeah, Caesar? He's like, no, no, Caesar's boss, all right? The king above all kings, this king, he, he would come and he would suffer and die. Paul's referring probably to Isaiah 53 in verse 4 through 5. He says this, He was born, or he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's Jesus. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, inflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. So what he's saying is that this king, Agrippa, I, I just simply believe what the prophets say. Here's an interesting little side note. How many of you can actually point out, if you did not have a New Testament, all right, how many of you can actually point out that Jesus is the Messiah just from your Old Testament? All right? You don't have the New Testament. How many of you can actually sit down with somebody and be like, I'm going to tell you about who Jesus is? They're like, oh, what part of the New Testament? Are you? I don't, I'm not even going to use my New Testament. I'm just going to only go Old Testament. That's what Paul's doing. He doesn't have the advantage of what we call the New Testament. Paul's literally referring to just the prophets, and this is Isaiah. Next one, he talks about how this king would rise again from the dead. Isaiah 52, verse 13, just one of the many passages that would allude to this. He says that my servant will act wisely, and he will be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalt exalted. This idea of exaltation is this concept that he's going to be vindicated. Even though that he paid the price for somebody or something, even though he was crushed and bruised and wounded, for somebody else and dies and pays the consequences of that death, he will be vindicated. The word for that is lifted up. So in other words, the way the New Testament writers would have identified this is that he, Jesus, somebody, whoever this is, would be raised from the dead. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus rising again from the dead. The third thing he describes is that this king would become a light to all the nations. This is probably a reference to two passages in Isaiah, probably a third, which I'll read to in just a moment. Isaiah 42 says this, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, uh, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So that word light, 
for the nations. The word nations, uh, we would get the English word like Gentiles. Some of your translations might even say Gentiles. But this is the idea that whoever this king is, this king was never intended to just simply be for a localized region called Israel. It was always intended by God from the very beginning through the prophets to be for all creation, all the world. Uh, Isaiah 49 verse 6 says this, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So in summary, what I want to wrap up as we finish this is I want to read the last few passages and I'll wrap it up. Verse 24, it says, And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. In other words, some other translation might say, Paul, you're going mad. You're losing it. You're insane. What are you talking about? Uh, you have literally gone crazy, Paul. What's wrong with you? Verse 25, then Paul says, so what you see here kind of in the final closing portions of this uh, movement is just kind of this back and forth between Paul and Festus, Festus and Agrippa, Agrippa and Paul and back and forth. So then Paul responds back. He says, but Paul then said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true rational words. Verse 26, for the king knows about the very things and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Just pause. I want you to imagine this. Tiny little Jewish guy in shackles in front of the most highest dignitary in the land, the representative of Caesar, right there. He says, you believe the prophets, right? Come on, you believe this stuff, right, Agrippa? What do you say for yourself? I would imagine in that like, scenario, there's this gasp, like, oh my gosh. You, like, he just talked to Trump that way. How can you do that? That was not a slip. You, you can't talk to a dignitary that way. That is illegal that you will get destroyed for doing that. And Paul's just like, I don't care. I represent the highest king of all kings, and he will stand before God, and he asks him, you believe in these things? And then Agrippa comes back, and he says, for I know that you believe. And Agrippa then said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This is kind of a famous passage where Paul, again, I imagine him lifting up his hands. He's like, guys, look, what I would hope is for all of you to be like me, minus the chains. Free. So Paul's saying, saying, I truly stand before you, even though I'm a victim of your entire scheme. Somehow, God is in control of my life. Though you may look like you have the power and the authority, and you are the ones of elite status, and that you are free, Paul says, you're the ones that are actually bound. And I'm free before God. And then he finishes in verse 30. He says, and then the king rose and the governor, Bernice, and those who were there sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa then said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Wah, wah, wah. Like, bummer, Paul could go free right now. But he's just like, ah, but he asked to go to Caesar. So to Caesar he will go. And that's where the story ends this week and will conclude or continue as Paul then ends up on this journey. But what I want to finish with is just a couple things to think about and we're done. So wrap it up with this thought. So two things that I think about at least and takeaways. Number one, I think of the fact that uh, your, your personal story matters. Um, Paul's constantly reciting his story. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because Paul's story matters. And Paul's not afraid to describe who he was what he came from, your story matters. Your story carries some level of, of uh, witness and testimony to it. Don't, don't be afraid. Now, every one of us have different stories. And there's a tendency for some of us to belittle our story and be like, well, my story is so boring. You know, I grew up in a Christian home and was homeschooled and helped my mama churn butter. And there was nothing <laughs> spectacular about my life and, like, and nothing great. And I've always been a Christian. Look, look the reality is, I mean, for some, of, for some of you guys, that, that's okay. That's an amazing story. You know what that says? 
your entire life. Jesus has been the center of your heart. Do you realize how monumental that is? That's insane. Jesus has been the center of your heart your whole life. Glory to God. For most of us, it hasn't been a story. To our shame, that hasn't been our story. But what Paul's basically saying is that his story matters to share in certain contexts your story, whatever it is that God has given you. Don't be afraid to incorporate that, to share that, to open that up to the lives of the people around you. Secondly, um, again, this is a constant recitation throughout the story. Resurrection is central to the entire story, which means Jesus is central to the entire story, which means hope is really central to all things. Christianity is about hope. At the core of it, it's about hope. Because it's about a God that doesn't look at death and say, I'm not sure what to do. Christianity is about a God that overcomes death with life, radical life. And that gives us hope. Because what that means is that there is nobody in this room whose life is so dead and broken and ruined and messed up and lost or far from home, that's not beyond the reach of God's grace and help and healing. So how do we get back? We trust, we repent, we turn, we believe the story that God invites us to. So, in closing, why don't we all stand, wrap this up, we'll sing a song to respond to who God is, partake of communion. Uh, we went just a tad bit over. If you're here and you got kids, it might be a good idea for you now if you want, or maybe one of you guys, parents, to go get your kids and bring them in here if you, if you like. That's fine. Um, we'll just wrap up with a song, partake of communion, and respond to who God is. And what I would invite you to do is to think about, like, who, who is God and how has God revealed himself to you? And what would a right response to this God look like? My suggestion would be, is that he truly is king over all things, king of kings, lord of lords, over all things, then my suggestion is that he would be worthy of everything in your life. Your worship, your praise, your fears, your worries, your future, your present, and even your past. You don't have to carry your past and the shame and the guilt that oftentimes is associated with it. You can give that to Christ and he will wash you and cleanse you and make you new. So let me pray. We'll sing, partake of communion, we'll wrap it up. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to trust you. So now, God, we turn to you and we trust you.